0: All right, so I'm just going to kind of recap in a very, very simple way what we were looking at last week. We're in chapter four, and so if you haven't been with us, the first, the first seven, the first seven um, parts of Revelation, and, and kind of remember this—that's how Revelation is written, right—in sevens are, are really these letters that come to seven churches. And they are letters where God is speaking into the church, and they're composed in such a way that, that, that Jesus is saying to the church, these things I have for you, all right? These things I love about what you're doing, okay? And I always challenge pastors. Uh, if you were to get your congregation together, and you were to have a wall over here, and I was just to, I was just to say to you, what, what are some really great things that are happening in your church, Okay. Well, you would put all kinds of things up on that wall, right? You'd put things like, well, we got a great uh, coffee ministry. That's a, good, that's a good thing over there. We got a good youth ministry. Whatever you put over there. Then over here, what if I say, what about on this, this wall over here, I were to ask you, what are some things that are happening in a church that are not good? Okay. Well, the first seven letters of the Revelation, they do that. It's, it's Jesus now. And he's looking at the church and saying, these things I'm looking at and I see they're right. And, let me add this, what Jesus would write on his board is probably different than what you'd write on yours. Because he's not interested in, in coffee ministry and church picnics and most of the things that we're interested in. He's interested in the kingdom. What about on this board over here? I've noticed if you get a group of 10 Lutherans together and you give them, you give them each one of these and you say, okay, ready, set, go, Write on your board... Good things, not so good things. Which board will get filled up fastest? Listen over here. It's our nature, right? But the kind of things that we would write on our board over here, we'd say, well, you know, they don't. The greeters aren't smiling enough, and the choir doesn't sing loud enough, and and the organist needs help, and you know, the pastor needs psychotherapy, and you know, I mean, you write all that stuff over there, and and again, when Jesus writes on His board, He it's completely different than that. Uh, He doesn't care. Most of the things that we complain about. You know, I didn't, I didn't like that song that they sang and, and they, they, they had, the, the drummer was, Jesus, he doesn't care about that. He's, all he's looking at is, is your church, is the body coming together in such a way that you are reaching lost people? Bottom line, I, it, Jesus, I don't, you know, how many styles of worship you have, how, how good the musician, Jesus goes, that's all fine. You know what? It doesn't matter an ounce if you're not bringing people who don't know me in a faith. And that's what you're seeing in those first seven letters. When you get done with them, if you're John and you're receiving this revelation, when you get done with them, there's a sense in which you need a break. You just need a break. You need to kind of go, whew, because they're hard. They're not easy letters to receive. They're tough. And so what you find in chapter four is that reprieve, that sense in which, just breathe, right? And you get this scene in chapter 4 where uh, this picture of, of God in heaven is given to us. Now, I'm going to recap this very quickly. When you read through chapter 4, some of the things you see, you get to see a throne, right? And seated on the throne is a king. What, what, is, what is God saying to John there? He's saying, John, I'm going to show you now some really hard things, things that are to come there are going to be things that happen in your life and there are going to be things that happen inside the church and there's going to be things that happen on this earth that are really, really hard. And you're going to wonder, where is God in this? We do. We watch the news. We, we do watch a tornado come and, whew, and they say things like, well, there was three dead. And we go, oh, well, there's just three. Now talk to the, Talk to the people who loved those three people. Where's God? Where was he in all that? And what, what what John is hearing is, guess where he is? He's on his throne. He's still the king. Did he allow that tornado to happen? Absolutely. He, he permissioned it and authorized it. Now, our little minds, our human minds, want to fight against that. We want to say, well, that's not fair, God, and and that wasn't good, and they were Christians, and you should have protected them. God says, no, 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 no. You're looking at life from a worldly perspective. I always see life through a kingdom lens. I was ready to bring those people home to me. And guess what else I'm going to do? I'm going to take all that destruction that happened, and I'm going to use it for good in this community. And he will, right? That's how God sees it he is on his throne. So for John, this is an important vision, right? Come up here in heaven and I'll show you what's going on. God is on his throne. As you get closer and closer to the end of this world, right, there will be increasingly hard, hard, horrible stuff that's happening. And we're asking the question, God, why would you allow that? Why did you you allow that, that terrorist to chop those people's head off and why did you allow that person to blow up a bomb in a mall we're asking those questions and and guess what i'm on my throne i will be on my throne second second picture we saw is we had these these jewels that kind of showed up and so you're like well why are these john says i see these colors jasper and carnelian and 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 emerald and we're like why do you see those well it's a message and I don't know, how many of you are watching this show AD, this, the, the Bible on television, all right? Uh, I'm, I'm watching it so that I can just answer questions, biggest question I've had asked, you know, how accurate is that show to the book of Acts? Scale of 1 to 10, 10 very accurate, 1 being not so accurate, it's probably about a negative 2. Okay. It's really not all that accurate because of the way they're depicting things right the relationship of the high priest to to uh peter the relationship of the high priest and pilate Pilate, all of all of how they're depicting Pilate. not really all that accurate but there's pieces of it that are if you saw last week guess what you saw you saw those colors where are they anybody notice this the high priest is wearing a little deal like this on him if you watch it tonight just watch for that thing and it's got what 12 stones on it. What are the color of the stones? Jasper, carnelian, emerald, they're all on there. The 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate were meant to each one of them to, to represent one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's what it's saying. You, the high priest, are to serve, come up underneath and serve, each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, why is that in heaven? Well, the king is wearing that breastplate of the high priest and the message of it is what kind of a god do you have not a king that sits above you and judges you and says you're wrong and i'm going to destroy you not that kind of king but what kind of king a priest king what does a priest do serves you you have a king that actually came down to earth became flesh served you on a cross he's a priest king that's who jesus is So during these last days, recognize that this Jesus Christ who's ascended into heaven did not just leave you alone, right? But he will serve you all the way through the end of your life and he will serve his people all the way to the end of time. That's the kind of king that he is. We saw an iris or a rainbow representing the promise of God. So this king who serves us does so according to The promises that he has made to us. I think those promises are important. As we go through these last days on earth, you know, one of the things I always recommend to Christians is become highly aware of all of the promises of scripture. You're going to need them right? And uh, I had a friend one time who just took their Bible and said, I'm going to take a highlighter and I'm going to go through it. I'm just going to highlight every promise that that Jesus Christ has made to me. And I'm going to keep that thing handy so that every time I get myself into a hard spot, I just turn to a promise of God. And this is what he's saying is this God will see you through. He will serve you and he will keep every single one of his promises. So that's what you're seeing, John, is a God who will keep his promises all the way to the very end. Now, Second thing John sees, not just, not just the king seated on the throne, but around the throne are 24 little thrones, right? And last week we said, well, if you look at that, 24 divided in half, 12 and 12, kind of points us backwards to the Old Testament, right? Where those 12 tribes of Israel represent all of the people in the Old Testament who came underneath this promise, who trusted Jesus Christ. A lot of people ask that. They're like, well, Luke, tell me this. I get it in the New Testament. Everyone who believes on Jesus is saved. But what about the Old Testament? It's not different. In the Old Testament, everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. Those who do not are not. But wait a minute. Jesus wasn't around in the Old Testament. Yes, he was. Jesus never wasn't around, right? But he wasn't known as Jesus. What did they call him? Yahshua or Messiah, right? And so uh, as you watch this AD story, if you watch it, a lot of the Jews, they they will use that terminology. Yahshua, Messiah, is the one who we're waiting for to fulfill the promise that was made to Adam in the garden that he will come and he will crush the head of our enemy. Okay? The only problem with the Jews is they got the enemy wrong. They thought, who is the enemy? Rome. oh no 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 who is the enemy satan death the devil the jews missed it right and so what he's saying is in the old testament there's a lot of people who missed it there's also a lot of people who got it and when you read books like hebrews chapter 11 that's what you have you have all these old testament people listed and it says the same thing of every single one of them they're saved by faith they trusted jesus So they are all these people in the Old Testament that came underneath the promise of God. Where are they? They're in heaven. They're with God and they are serving with him. Why are they on thrones? Why are they on thrones? They're not kings. No, but the throne represents the promise that God made to all of us who overcome through his blood. He says, you will reign with me. When you're on the throne with the big guy on the throne, guess what? All you want is what he wants. Your wills are aligned. And so this is what, one thing we can say of what heaven is, is people who have gone to heaven, right? It's Mother's Day today. So somebody came up to me and said, this is my first Mother's Day without my mom. Kind of hurts. I'm like, well, my mom died the day after Mother's Day, right? So I always think of my mom. What's she doing in heaven? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know the whole of what she's doing, but I know this is her will is aligned with God's. That's why she's seated on that little throne. She's on that throne. Anyone that you know who you've loved, who's gone to heaven uh, b- before uh, you have, they are represented in these thrones right here. They are with God, desiring his will. Ultimately, what does that mean? It means everyone in heaven desires one thing that the end to come that restoration be made quickly your your soul is without your body and you simply desire the end to come your will is aligned with god's will same thing with the new testament 12 there are 12 apostles right representative of all those people in the new testament who have come to believe in jesus christ have come underneath his promises so we're we're seeing these images Uh, of a God who is firmly in control and those who've gone on before us who desire the end to come. All right. Now, it gets good. Today, we get critters. I love critters. All right. What kind of critters? Well, let's take a look at them. Here's what it says. Let's go uh, over to verse number six. Last week, we talked about this crystal glass floor that allows God to see all of what's happening in creation. And uh, as we look around that throne, it says on each side of it uh, are four living creatures, critters, all right? Now, have you ever seen a critter like this one? Full of eyes in front and behind. Now, what does that tell us? Is that a male or a female critter? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think only the moms have the eyes in the front and behind. Right? (laughs) Us guys are like doop doop doop. Like, did you see that? What? (laughs) All right. The first living creature it says was like a lion, and the second living creature was like an ox. And the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, and they're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What in the world are these critters? Well, I remember a few minutes ago, I said, why don't you try to just kind of picture the best picture of an angel that you have ever seen. Okay? So you kind of think about it and you're like, well, we've got the little cherubs, you know, on the valentine candy and they've got the big fat cheeks and they're smiling. I'm like, that's a horrible picture of an angel. Okay? Um, best picture I've probably ever seen was uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. A uh, painter we ran into, he was studying Jewish literature and he was trying to develop some pictures of angels based upon Jewish literature, I said, well, yours are probably the best pictures of an angel I've ever seen, but they're still not right. You want to see a picture of an angel? Well, this is a little bit of one. Creatures, faces, ox, lion, eagle, man, six wings. Why six wings? Six. One short of seven. They're not God. They're one short of seven. They're not God. They are servants of God. By the way, the mark of the beast, six, six, six right? One short, one short, one short, a trinity of sixes. Here, two wings. Why? Because Satan is meant to be what? A servant of God. It's an angel. It's a fallen angel. He's six, 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 Jesus, seven. These angels are six-winged because they are servants of not only God, but of all of his creation. Why do we see the faces of man? An ox, an eagle, and lion. All Of the critters here on earth are kind of represented in those faces but if you really want to get a picture of an angel you got to go over there to the book of Ezekiel chapter 10 and you'll see a little snapshot of what a cherub looks like just flip over there for a minute Ezekiel chapter 10 and tell me if this doesn't kind of blow your mind beginning of verse number 9 chapter 10 Ezekiel Ezekiel is uh, like John in this section of his book being allowed to look into heaven. And I want you to remember when you read this that every single picture that we get from John or from Ezekiel or from Daniel uh, or from Paul, all the pictures that we have of heaven are, are symbols, right? Always remember that. Do, they, do the symbols represent realities? Yes. But is the symbol the reality? No. So, so all of them are a little bit different, but they have similar characteristics. When Ezekiel looked at angels in heaven, he looked at cherubs. This is what a cherub looks like, verse number 9. It says, I looked and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherub them. One beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. Like a jewel that sparkles. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. Hmm. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. Almost sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? Like, just like that. All right, that's what he's seeing. Okay, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the other followed without turning as they went, and their whole body. The rims and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around. It's exactly what John is seeing, these eyes that surround these magnificent creatures. It says, verse 13, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. Ooh. Now, this is a little bit different, but follow it. The first face was the face of the cherub, the angel itself. The second face was the face of a human, same as what John saw. The third face was the face of a lion, same as John saw. The fourth face was the face of an eagle. Okay. So when Ezekiel looks in heaven, he sees what John sees. He's looking at angels. There are different types of angels, right? So if we look at Jewish literature, we have the archangels who show up in the Bible from time to time. Most of us are familiar with Michael is the one named archangel. The Jews name all of the archangels. They're not really named in the Bible. Then we have cherubim. Remember the cherubim show up on planet Earth in symbolic depiction in the temple. Remember where the cherubim are in the temple? We have the Ark of the Covenant, Right? So you have these cherubim, and their wings are almost touching over that ark. And then above them are two others. There's always four when you go to the temple, representative of exactly what Ezekiel saw. And remember, the temple is built according to the directions of God. He said, I want you to put these symbolic depictions of my angels, my cherubim, Above you. Cherubim are mentioned 90 times in the Bible. 90 different times. The first time a cherubim shows up is in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Shortly after Adam and Eve sin, and they fall into sin. And God says, I'm going to send one of my angels. And here's what I want you to do. Take a sword and guard the tree. Guard it from every angle. Lest Adam and Eve, in their fallen, broken state, come and try to eat of the tree of life. And live in a fallen state for the rest of their life. Guard them from doing that. Protect them from doing that. A cherub comes to earth. Why? Well, because cherubs serve men. Right? That's what they do. They serve not only men. I believe they serve the whole of creation, including the animal kingdom. Why do we have these different faces? That's why. Now, there are cherubim and there are seraphim. Seraphim, the term seraph, is a what is is fire, fire angels, okay? So uh, seraphim show up in the book of Isaiah, chapter six. Turn there, just a couple of quick verses, and you'll put the whole of the picture together. In the very first three verses of chapter six, Isaiah, Isaiah is doing the same thing as Ezekiel, and the same thing as John, and the same thing as Paul. He's being invited up into the heavens to see what our human eyes can't see. This time, he looks at angels, once again, These angels are seraphim. So uh, take a look at this. It says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. See the similarity there? God is always just sending out this message. I'm in control. He was high and he was lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Remember that song that we used to sing? I see the Lord seated on his throne, exalted. Remember that song we used to sing? Above him stood the seraphim, the angels of fire. Each had, hmm, exactly what John says, six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And he said as he flew, ooh, notice these words seem similar to Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Go back over to the Revelation. What's John seeing? He's seeing that in heaven right now, there are my mom and my dad and people that belong to you. They have the will of God. They desire that he bring an end to all things. And there are now his, what we call, sabbath army, his army of angels. Cherubim, seraphim, archangels. And we're going to run into one more angel called the Iscurios angel, the strong angel. And so what we know is that there's, just like in an army, you would have a general and a sergeant, and you've got that same classification going on with angels that God has them divided up, and they each probably perform different tasks for him as they serve, that's the six, all of creation. They're covering their eyes, and they're covering their feet because they're standing before the Holy One. And when they worship God, they stand before him like that, and they cry out. You are holy. Holy meaning what? Separate and different. Untouchable. You are perfect. And so they sing that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. One other just kind of side note that, uh, you know, some of you have probably seen this before. Back in the third century, uh, this guy named Victorious, and I love that name. You know, I don't know anybody's going to have a baby or not, but it's not a bad name, Victorious, right? You guys know Malcolm Gladwell? Do you know that name? Malcolm Gladwell is an author. He likes to do what we call correlative studies that uh, kind of blow people's minds. In other words, he, he looks into our American culture and he picks out things that we typically relate to one another and he proves that we, we normally have it wrong, right? So Malcolm Gladwell, he actually did this study. It's true. He, uh, he was doing a study of names. How do people name their kids? It's kind of a fun study. And it's cyclical. You can just follow it in history. In uh, upper middle class uh, segments, typically names start with aristocrats, people who have a lot of money, and they filter down into middle class. And then they disappear, and you kind of got the next name cycle. And they go around, and they go around, and they go around. In an African subculture, he says, okay, it's a little bit different. Uh, one study, my favorite study he did, is, is of two kids. One of them was named Winner, how would you like to name it? Well, that's it, victorious, right there. The other child was named Loser. Parent named their child Loser. He did a study of those two kids, guess what happened? Winner turned out to be a loser, and loser turned out to be a winner. True story. Interesting. Anyway, victorious in the third century. I just threw that in for the side. I thought it was fun. <laughs> He took these four symbols out of the Revelation, and he says, you know what we're going to do with them is we're going to equate them with the Gospels. Now, I don't think that's a right correlation. It's not, right? When you see these faces of angels, all it's really meant to say to you is that the angels are servants of God to all of creation. Men, the birds of the sky, right? The the animals of prey, uh, the working animals, they are servants to all, right? Well, Victoria said, yeah, but that, that's good, but we could line them up with the, there's four of them, we could line them up with the Gospels. So in a lot of churches and a lot of ancient art, if you look at stained glass windows, it's not uncommon to see a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle represented. And that comes from the third century when Victoria said, we're going to make the lion Mark, the man Matthew, the ox Luke. Why couldn't I be the eagle? I mean, I just want to be an eagle once. No, I've got to be an ox. All right, great. John gets to be the eagle. All right? So that's, that's kind of where that comes from. And, and Victorious did that. It's depicted in art. You'll see it. I'm sure you'll see it sometime. It really doesn't have meaning. The meaning actually derives from, nope, these are angels, cherubim and seraphim that John is looking at. And they are crying out. They are crying out. The same thing that Isaiah heard. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Notice that last phrase is important. Here's why. What did I say you're doing when you're in heaven? Okay, I'm in heaven. My will is aligned with the one who's on the throne, right? Am I just, like in heaven, do you just spend all day worshiping God? Like one eternal worship service? I actually had a guy ask me that one time. He's like, pastor luke he says i got a question he says do you guys you guys have heaven and you have hell he says is there like an alternative i'm like what are you talking about he's like well i I don't i don't like hell that just seems bad i'm like yeah it's pretty it's not good He goes, but heaven the idea of sitting in a worship service eternally i don't want to do that (laughs) i'm like well i don't want to do that either you know he's like i I don't want to like don't give me a cloud and a harp he says i'm not i'm not good with that i'm like all right well, again, these are just symbols meant to depict what's going on. There's a, there is a worshiping of God. And, but, but more than just worshiping Him, they're saying something here. They're saying, Holy, set apart, and right are you who was. Now remember this in the Revelation, there is a time, and a time, and a half a time. This is just a different way of saying it. Holy, holy, holy are you who was. A time. You are the God who, who was from the beginning and the God who served over his church in the Old Testament and is. You're the God of today, the God who is here amongst us now at work. A time and a time. This is the New Testament era. This is the second Ionios, as we call it. Okay. And then a half a time. Who is to come. You're coming again. And in that half time, at the end of it, you will come again. And so what they're saying is, if I can put it in simple language, the same thing that you do every Sunday when you come together and you say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What you're saying is end this era. That's what the 24 folks on thrones are doing. They're saying, God, come. You you were, you are, you are to come. Come quickly. That's what the angels are doing amongst God. They're praising him and recognizing that he will bring all things to an end. Verse number nine says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, okay, so um, when when you see us as we go into heaven, uh, and we begin to worship God. Um, we are no different than the angels. We become like them. We we bow down before Him. We take the crowns that are given us. If anyone is faithful, let him receive a crown of life. Right? You take your crown. You throw it before Him. What what are you symbolizing? I'm not really king. You're a king. I submit to you. I want your will to be done. Okay. And now look what they say. The the twenty four elders all right or us when we're in heaven this is really interesting to me I, I like this they say worthy worthy are you our lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created okay take that first word and I want to make I want to just kind of bring a little bit of right now meaning to it Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power. For you created all things. By your will, all things that are exist. They belong to you. They belong to you. This crown belongs to you. My life belongs to you. When you're in heaven, you know who you are. You recognize who you are. You're a created being. So do the angels. They are a created being. Everyone in heaven knows exactly who they are. I'm not God. You're God. I, I bow before you. I put my crown before you. That is what we are supposed to do. But I'm afraid that we live in a culture that really has turned things upside down. We live in America where we're kind of told this. The story that we're told is you come into the world, you, you get slapped on the butt and put... put Diapers on, and you start to grow up, and here's what you're told: you, you, this world was made for you, and what God wants you to be in this world is happy, and fulfilled, and so that was what God does: is he he brings you happiness and fulfillment because he's he's serving you. It's upside down, completely upside down. No wonder we don't have very many people, even inside of the church, that think in kingdom terms. We're living like. Worldly people, thinking that the world is for us. It's not. Everyone in heaven, the angels and those who've gone before us, throw their crowns before God and they say, oh, no, 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 we we actually belong to you. We give ourselves up. I give up my rights. I give up my position. I give it all up, Lord. Use me as you choose to use me. Boy, is that different. Here's where I see it. All right, we're uh, getting ready to graduate. Some seniors are going to graduate. When I just listen to the language, even inside of the church that we use with our seniors, here's what it sounds like. What do you want to be? What do you want to study? What college are you going to go to? What's your major going to be? All wrong questions. Right questions. What did God make you for? What passions did he put inside of you? How will what you do serve his kingdom? Right questions. Why? Because our seniors, me, you, we all belong to him. The right question is to come before him and say, God, I throw my crown before you. I give it up. I'm not the king. You are the king. You have control of my life. Now, notice this. That is actually what worship is supposed to be. Did you guys know that? The term, the Greek term used here for the word worthy is axios. Axios, worthy, is the Greek word from which we derive our English word, Old English, worthship. You know what worthship is? Worship. Worship is that act by which I come before God and I say what? What are you worth? right? You are worth everything. You are my life. I submit to you, okay? I don't know if we actually think about it this way, but um, the way that we worship and the choices we make about worship are actually saying to God, this is what you're worth in my life. That scares me. You know why that scares me? When I was a kid growing up in San Antonio, Texas, my pastor used to be very upset, you know why? Because only 8 out of 10 Christians came to church on Sunday morning and worshiped. Now, you don't have to go to church to worship. You ought to worship on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. That to be the way that we live, right? But remember, he says, when you when you set aside the Sabbath day, you come together, all together, and you worship. He was angry. 8 out of 10 Christians. He, would, I mean, I can just see him up there. He'd be like, what's coming about with our world that eight? 8 out of 10, you know what it is today? used to be about 3.3 was the average. I don't know how you get three, a, three, a 0.3 person. I really don't. I'd be like, okay, you're the 0.3. Um, or some people come to worship and they're about like at a 0.3 level. They're like, oh, why are you here? I don't know. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, today it's actually dipped below 3.3%. And so I think, man, what are we saying to God? This is what you're worth. Really? No, worship, worship is coming before God. And what are we saying? You, you receive honor. I, I, I set you aside. I set this day aside. I set my tithe aside. I set myself aside. You receive honor. You receive glory. You, you receive power. Because here's what I know. I know who I am. People in heaven know who they are. People on earth forget who they are. We think we have the crown. Nope, he has the crown, and we give our lives to him. And so this is the scene that John has is uh, here's this God who is thoroughly in control, seated on his throne. He's a God of grace who serves me. He's a God of promise who will see me through. But he is a God who right now in heaven is reigning and who all of creation, all who've gone before us are saying, let's end it now. Let's bring it to an end. Let's get that half a time started so that it can come to an end and the resurrection can take place. Now, what John does is he looks at this thing and he goes, whew, wow, okay. Now chapter five is the second and concluding part of the vision that John sees. I'm just going to start into it and then we'll uh, close. Take a look at this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, where is Biblios, Written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. Let me just tell you it's coming. We're gonna pop open every one of those seven seals, and the first four we pop, there's gonna be some horses that ride. One is red, one is black, one is pale. Mm. They are um, horses of destruction. Bent on destroying your life and mine. And they are riding right now. Those will be the four seals that we pop. We're gonna get to a point where we're like, stop popping seals. This is not good, just stop. Nope, we're gonna pop all seven of them. At this point, John says, I looked and I see it. There it is, there's this scroll that's all rolled up. It's written from from within and from without, and it's sealed up. It's all of history, right there, in the hand of the one sitting on the throne. Now, here it is. And I saw a strong angel. This is the Ischyrus angel. It's different than a cherubim, different than a seraphim, Um, different than an archangel, it's an Ischorus angel, it's a strong angel. Strong angels seem to play some role in the heavens and on earth in serving all of creation. In this case, the strong angel is the proclaimer and he screams out with a loud voice a question. Who is, there's our word again, axios, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Here's the interesting thing. No one, in heaven. Okay, different word here, uranos. No one in the heavens, our atmospheres, none of the birds or creatures that God has made, or the stars or the moon or the Sun, or on earth, Not none of His creatures, or under the earth. Probably a reference to anything in the sea. Nothing in all that has been created is able to open the scroll or to look inside of it. And notice what John did? He starts crying at the recognition that there's not one, not not anything created that is even able to look upon the plan that God has made for all of eternity. No one was found worthy to open the scrolls or look into it. Now I'm going to close with this verse. And one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah, who is it? Jesus Christ. Prophesied all the way back to the day of Jacob Taking his sons and speaking a prophecy over each one of them. And of the one who becomes David of that family line, he says, you're, you're, You will rule upon the throne forever and ever. You are from the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, he's the lion. And I love it that C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the, Narn- the Narnia Chronicles, chooses the lion to represent Jesus. He will open its seals. He is the one who gave David his very life. All right, let's stop there and we'll pick up next week and uh, we'll get, get that scene concluded so we can start popping some seals open. Lord,